Well, good morning once again. Can I have you, have you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1? So if you're new to this, let me just give you a quick uh, update. Um, I have usually the style here at Calvary is to go verse by verse. That's how we teach every book of the Bible. I've already taught Philippians verse by verse in depth. And so I believe God laid it on my heart to teach it this time topically. So the theme of Philippians is joy. Actually, joy in adversity, really, but joy. So uh, we isolated every place in the book where the words joy and rejoice appear. Studied that context to see what was it attached to. And then we made those our main points. So far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Next, joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Last time, we looked at joy of faith, chapter 1, verse 25 and 6. And now we're on one that we're calling joy in unity. Uh, And that starts off in chapter 1, and let's pick it up in verse 27. Now, it's up to you guys to read the whole context, okay? So uh, throughout the week, it would be a bad idea to read the whole book every week because it's not that long. But please make sure you read the whole context so you get the flow of all the thoughts that Paul is presenting. But verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now the heart of Paul being expressed in this passage out of Philippians is unity among the people of God. In fact, seven times in these verses using various phrases, he expresses his hope that the Philippian Christians will walk in unity with one another. Why was unity? And Paul wrote this from prison. Uh, So he had enough on his own plate to worry about for himself. Okay, But why was the subject of unity so important to Paul? Well, as we have said before, it was important because, first of all, he knew it was essential for joy, and that's really what he wanted to communicate. But also... It was uh, essential, he knew, was essential for victory in our battle against the devil. We're just reviewing a little bit from last time, but it is the devil's goal to create disunity and strife because he knows it's going to lead to division, and division will destroy marriages, families, churches, and whole nations. Of course, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself, every nation divided against itself is brought to ruin, and every city or house family divided against itself will not stand. Guys, unity flat out is from the Holy Spirit, whereas division is of the devil, and it's his main strategy to divide and conquer. And because unity is essential for victory over the devil, well, God commands us as his people that we do all we can do to promote unity in the body of Christ. Very important. Now, one of the greatest passages uh, on Christian unity in the New Testament comes out of Ephesians chapter 4. If you turn there, while you're turning there, let me just say that in Ephesians 4, Paul spends the first 16 verses stressing the importance of unity as being essential if we are going to properly represent and serve Jesus as his body on the earth until he returns. In Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 13, talks about the basis for our unity with one another as believers in Christ. In verse 3, he talks about 
and, and uh, admonishes us, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In verse 13, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. In these verses, Paul speaks of two kinds of Christian unity, unity of the Spirit and unity of the faith. Now, last week, we started looking at the first one, the unity of the Spirit. Let me read Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we said last time in Ephesians 4, verse 3, when t Paul admonishes us to endeavor, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, um, it's a Greek word that's a uh, present participle. And we could translate that, we must con constantly be endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why? Well, because it will constantly be under attack from the devil. Think of marriage. Think of marriage. You can't let your marriage exist running on autopilot. Marriage is kind of like a garden. It could be a place where beautiful flowers are grown. But those flowers and that garden needs to be tended to all the time. Because if you neglect it for just a few days, suddenly the weeds start appearing. Neglect it a few days more, the weeds are getting bigger. And after a week or two, that garden begun, becomes overrun with weeds, which are choking out all the beauty. Our walk is to be a perpetual thing where we're maintaining our walk with Jesus Christ. We're staying in the Word. We're staying in fellowship. We're staying close to Him through our devotional lives. We need that if the fruit of the Spirit is going to continue to grow beautiful and rich, lovely in our lives. That's the goal that we manifest the character of God in our lives, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So, in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the importance of maintaining our unity as Christians. But then in verses 4 to 6, he goes on to give us the seven spiritual realities that make up our unity and bind us together as one in Christ. Let me read verses 4 to 6. Paul said there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here in verses 4 to 6, Paul names seven spiritual realities that unite, listen, all true Christians together, not all churchgoers, all true Christians together. Now, we started looking at, we looked at the first one last time. Let me just give you a quick review. The first reality that binds us together is that we are one body with each other. Of course, this is referring to the body of Christ, containing all true believers, spread across the, uh, spread across the world and down through the centuries from Pentecost to the rapture. That's what is called the church age. So the church started Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. It's continuing. The church age will officially close with the rapture of the church. At that time, God will turn his attention back to Israel and save 144,000 Jewish Paul the Apostles. And they're going to go through the world and they are going to be used to save millions upon millions of people before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Now, when Paul admonishes us in Ephesians 4, verse 3, to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, the word in the Greek for spirit is pneuma. Pneuma. Now, that's a word that could be translated spirit. It also could be translated breath. Breath. Look, breath equals life. God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of God, Adam became a living soul. Breath equals life. If there is no breath in a physical body, that body is dead. Even so, the body of Christ is a living entity by virtue of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, a.k.a. the breath of God, 
living within us. Without the life of the Holy Spirit in the church, we would be a corpse. The church would be a corpse, not a, a dead organization, not a living body. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us alive. Now, without the life, excuse me, unfortunately, there's a lot of folks that kind of see the church as a, an organization. But that is fundamentally incorrect. The scriptures teach that the church isn't an organization. Listen, it's an organism. An organism. The big difference between an organism and an organization is that one has life, the other does not. One author summed it up well. He said, and I quote, a corpse is organized. It has all the limbs in the right place. The bone structure is intact. All the organs are in the right spot and connected to the right things. Everything is there, but it's not alive. At this point, it's an organization, but it ceased being an organism. The dictionary defines an organization as a structured system, but it defines an organism as a living system, end quote. And so, guys, again, the scriptures teach that the church isn't a dead organization. It's a living organism. It's living because Jesus, who is alive, is its head. And because the very life breath of God, the Holy Spirit, fills its members. We are all living members of the body of Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a living member, spiritually living, of the body of Christ. We're all members of the body of Christ, knit together by the Holy Spirit. And listen. We've been given various gifts and ministries that the church, the body of Christ, might live and grow and serve the Lord effectively on the earth in unity. You're in the neighborhood, so look at Ephesians 4, verse 15. Paul talks about this, and I'm going to read it out of the NLT. Ephesians 4, starting with verses 15, kind of in the middle of the verse, I think, we start... Paul says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work, conducts its own special ministry. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Look, there are no spectators, not technically, there are practically but God never called anybody to be a spectator in the church. We are all members of his body. And he has given to each of us gifts to be used uh, for the ministry of the church. Some of those gifts to the church. Some of those gifts, the church working and ministering in the world. But here's the thing. If a local church uh, has a group of people and we'll say half of them are really not serving or using their gifts. They're enjoying watching others do the work. They just want to come, enjoy themselves, and leave. So you have a small percentage doing all the work, really. It would be kind of like if your physical body wasn't 100%. You know, um, you had a shoulder injury and your arm's kind of hanging down. You had a knee replacement. Your hip, you know, is really killing you. You know, you might hobble around. And get some things done, but you're not 100%. You're not going to be able to get as much done as if you were completely healthy. A lot of churches are hindered because somewhere along the line, people have gotten the idea church is all about being a spectator and watching others do their work. I pay them. They're the professionals. You know, they need to do the work. And I don't mind doing the work. I just like a little help. You guys are great. Some of you, though, are cheating yourselves because you're not using your gifts. If you're not plugged into the body, not only is the body suffering, listen, there is no way you're going to reach your potential as a Christian if you're not using your gifts. The Holy Spirit is energizing those gifts when they're being used. Uh, you know, and you are being energized by the Spirit of God. Excuse me, by the Spirit of God. And, and your Christian life is taking off. It's lighting up, if you will. Because you're plugged into the body, using your gifts. So again, guys, Scripture teaches that uh, in Jesus we have a spiritual unity with one another by virtue of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit binds us together in one body in Christ. Now, this unity is invisible. We can't see 
who is a Christian at first glance? Hang around with somebody for a little while? Yeah, all right? I mean, all you got to do is talk to a person for about 30 seconds, and I'm already getting a pretty good clue where they're coming from. The profanity, the off-color remarks, okay. But this unity is invisible, but it's still very real. In fact, it's so powerful that the unity we enjoy uh, as Christians with each other is stronger oftentimes, and let me just say, go on record, say all the time is stronger than the unity we have in our own flesh and blood human families. Why is that? Well, some of you folks, your families are not doing well. Maybe your family is uh, estranged itself from you because of your Christianity. So it's easy to be close to those in the body of Christ. Or even, even for those of us who have a good family relationship still with unbelievers, I am closer to you folks as Christians than I am with them. Why? Because I can't talk to them about spiritual things. I can share the gospel, and I do. But I can't talk about the things of God lest I cast my pearls before the swine. I didn't, Jesus said it, so I'm, you know, I'm not trying to really put people down. I'm just saying. We can talk to each other about the deep things of God because we are Christians. What the Lord is doing. Maybe a trial we're going through that God's using to teach us something, right? We can do that because we have this oneness uh, in Christ and the Spirit. And yes, <laughs> okay, just as in a human family, there are quarrels and disagreements within the family of God, but that doesn't negate our unity in Christ. And while, look, quarrels and disagreements among the people of God can damage our witness to the world. So let's disagree in love. Let's respect each other. But even though we disagree on some minor issues, we still have unity in the Spirit. And that will never change because the unity we have in the Holy Spirit is eternal. Why? Well, first of all, because the Spirit's eternal. He's God. But also because when he came to live in our hearts at the moment of salvation, as Jesus said in John 14, he, will, he is with you he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He'll be with you always. When this life is over, you will continue to be connected to God through the Spirit and with each other and so on. But look, Paul was stressing practical unity. Yeah, the positional is important. It comes first. You accept Christ as your Savior, you're placed. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But what is practical unity looked like in the local church because that really was what paul was talking about here what practical things must we do to promote unity uh, on a daily basis well we don't really have to guess because paul goes on to tell us that if you look at ephesians 4 starting with verse 25 and again i'm going to read this to you out of the nlt let me read it to you where paul said look stop telling lies let us tell our neighbors, our Christian neighbors, the truth. Not that we should lie to non-Christian neighbors. I didn't mean to apply that. He's talking about Christians, though, how they relate to each other. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, knock it off. Stop stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ forgave you, has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. I'll let you finish reading the whole uh, section yourself. So... 
If every Christian in every church lived this way, the devil would never be able to divide us at all. Think about it. If we all practice this on a regular basis with each other, there would be such unity and love in churches, it would be absolutely mind-blowing. All right, well, Paul, first of all, says that we are bound in unity with each other because we're uh, in one body, one spirit. Number three, one hope of your calling. Now, when you read it, you think, well, that's easy. That's salvation. Um, yes and no. If you're saved, you're not hoping to be saved. You're saved. A hope is always yet future, something you're waiting for. These folks were saved. So what was the hope of their calling? Well, I believe it was the rapture. Because they were being persecuted for their faith. And Paul is telling them, look, don't be discouraged when people persecute you. That's an evidence that they're hell-bound and you're heaven-bound. Because the world loves its own. But if the world hates you and persecutes you, as Jesus said, that proves you're on the right team. You're on the right side. So I believe the hope, the, the one hope of our calling is to be taken off the earth before God judges it. We'll talk about that more in just a second. The rapture is Jesus coming for his bride, his church. The Bible says that we have not been called to be punished with the wicked. We've, we've re repented. We've received Christ. Our sins have been paid for, washed away. God is going to punish this Christ-rejecting world. There's no reason for Christians to be punished with the wicked. Peter says that's not going to happen. God won't allow it. Now, there are those that believe that the rapture is going to take place at the end of the tribulation period because we're going to be used by God to bring a lot of folks to Christ during the tribulation. Let me say this. It's not a blessed hope if i got to go through the tribulation period. Right? And by the way, if that theology is correct, guess what? I'm not looking for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm looking for the coming of the Antichrist. And that is something the Bible expressly condemns. Keep looking for Jesus. So, when the rapture happens, it's God evacuating his church off the earth in preparation for his judgment. That's Revelation 6 through chapter 19. But he never leaves himself without a witness. So when the church is gone, every believer on the face of the earth is out of here. There's no light left. God never leaves himself without the light of his truth, without a witness. He brings two witnesses right away, Revelation 11. I believe, we can disagree, Moses and Elijah. You can get the study if you're interested. And they're going to be used by God to save 144,000, for a lack of a better term, Paul the Apostles. Because these Jewish evangelists are going to be so dynamic. God is going to use them to save millions upon millions upon millions of people during the tribulation period. But what about us who are looking for the rapture? What hopes are involved in that event? Well, first of all, the hope that we're going to escape coming global judgment. We just talked about it. I'll give you two scriptures. Just write down the references. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul tells Titus, a young pastor... We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the rapture. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul said, For they themselves, and the context was they had gone, into, they had gone to Thessalonica, uh, Paul and his team, shared the gospel, a lot of folks got saved. And um, he's talking about coming to them, sharing the gospel not wanting anything from them, but working hard with their own hands to provide for the needs of those who didn't have much, right? For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols. A lot of the folks got saved. 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, he's talking about the rapture there. What else are we looking forward to when the rapture happens? Well, we're looking forward to the hope of sinless perfection. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of dragging this dead corpse around with me called the old man. Paul hits this in Romans. And the language he uses was from a practice that the Romans, uh, when they wanted to kill somebody, they had a variety of ways of doing this, by the way, crucifixion. One was, though, they would strap a corpse onto the back of a person, and as the corpse rotted, the rot would infect them and begin to slowly kill them. Wow. Good Lord in heaven. The things people come up with to torture their fellow man, right? But Paul picked up on it and go, you know, that's kind of like our old man. Um, when we got saved, we became a new creation. The life of God is in us. But the flesh or the old man is still there. And we're dragging this rotting corpse around with us through life. It's terrible, you know. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to finally having the rapture happen where I jettison the old nature, the old man. And finally, I am as perfect outwardly as I am inwardly through Christ. Did I tell you to turn to 1 John 2, uh, 3? I'm sorry. But I, I can't wait to finally be made perfect, sinless. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Rapture hasn't happened yet. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And again, Paul's talking about, excuse me, John's talking about the rapture. Um, but listen, we understand that when the rapture happens, we're going to be made like Jesus, perfect. But there are benefits of looking for the rapture right now on earth. As we wait for the rapture, it helps us to live in unity. We'll talk about that in a second. With each other as Christians. How does it help us live in unity? Well, looking for the return of Christ is something that is going to cause us to not look uh, to ourselves is going to help us not to be entangled in the cares of this life. That's number one. Because if Jesus is coming, I don't want him coming and finding me in sin. The Bible says that when he appears, some will be ashamed at his appearing. Talk about Christians. Because they weren't living for him. They were living carnal Christian lives. The good news is we're saved by grace. They're going to heaven. Thank God. But they're going to be ashamed when they see the face of Jesus Christ for the first time as a lamb that had been slain, bearing the marks of his crucifixion. So badly beaten, Isaiah says, when we first see him, we won't even recognize him as a human being. When he takes our face in those nail-scarred hands and we realize what he went through for us to be saved, we're going to be ashamed that we didn't live for him more than what we did on the earth. Don't let that happen. Don't be ashamed of his appearing. You serve him with all your heart so that when he appears, he can grab onto you with a big bear hug and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? You are faithful in some things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. But also, guys, John went on to say it's a great way, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the rapture, it's a great way to keep us pure and free from sin. Look at verse 2 again. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed at the rapture, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Guys, that means in part that the believer who keeps their eyes on Jesus' return will not get caught up with petty arguments, carnality, Again, I don't want him coming and finding me living a carnal life. It has a way when you... And that's why it's such a, a problem when churches don't even teach the rapture. Many don't even believe in it. They're not teaching their people Jesus is coming. I heard one 
person say he went to a church somewhere. Well, I believe he's coming maybe in a thousand years. I doubt if it's going to be a thousand days, the way things are going. But just keeping our eyes on Jesus, waiting for his return, has a way of keeping us pure. Walking in the spirit, not in sin, but also walking in fellowship and unity and not in carnality and bickering and fighting and so on. Another hope that we're looking for when the rapture happens is the hope of a new, perfect, glorified body. Wow, am I waiting for this? <laughs> I can't wait to trade in this old, broken-down Volkswagen for a brand-new Ferrari. <laughs> the classic passage on this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 53. Let me read it to you. You know it. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These physical bodies were not made for heaven. They're not going to inherit heaven. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, talking about the rapture, for the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, given a glorified body, never corrupt, never die again, and we shall be changed. For this corruption, this mortal body which is destined for death, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Look, these bodies that we, our spirit inhabits, um, were taken from the earth, from the dust of the earth, for us to live on the earth. Someday we'll die and they're going to return back to the earth. But if you're a Christian and you die before the rapture, when Jesus returns, he's going to wake or resurrect all believers in Christ and that they will instantly be given a new body, an incorruptible body, an immortal body that will never get sick or weary, will never die, never feel pain, and so on. And of course, last but not least, our greatest hope, of course, is the hope of heaven. Colossians 1.27, Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of heaven. All right. So Paul talks about we're united because we're one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. We'll end with this this morning. We'll pick it up next week, God willing. One Lord. One Lord. The word Lord, please don't misunderstand this, or a lot of Christians get this wrong. The word Lord isn't a name. It's a title. It's a title for the one who owns you, who controls you, the one to whom you obey immediately. A lot of Christians call Jesus Lord as if that's his name. His name is Jesus. His title is Lord. Which means he is the one that has control of our lives. And if he doesn't, well, either you need to get that right quick, or maybe it's an indication you're not saved at all. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep, my sheep, hear my voice. I know them, Greek is very deep, intimate knowledge, salvation. And they what? Follow me. They follow me. Following Jesus does not make you saved. If you're really saved, it's an evidence of your salvation. Unbelievers don't follow Jesus. They go to church, but they don't follow Christ as true believers do. You know, Jesus had a lot of um, groupies, lack of a better term. Hey, he was the hot prophet in town, putting down the Pharisees everywhere he went. They liked that. They hated the Pharisees, smug, arrogant, you know. And here's somebody that they couldn't get the best of. He kept bettering them. They loved it. Who wouldn't want to hang out with Jesus? But Jesus had a way of thinning the herd from time to time. So he turned to a group of these would-be disciples one day, all followers of Jesus. He said to them, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? And then it went on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, again, doing the will of God doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't earn you your salvation. 
But it is the evidence that you know Jesus. It's the evidence. You'll know them by their fruit, he said. Now, someone has said, it's difficult to believe how people who claim to believe in and obey the same Lord can, can't seem to walk in unity with each other. And th this is really a, a sad reality in so many churches and among so many Christians. That's a legitimate question, by the way. How come if all you Christians are filled with the Spirit, Jesus is in your heart. You all believe Jesus in Jesus. Why is it that there's so much disunity among Christians in churches today? That's a legitimate question. We're going to spend just a little time answering that in detail next time. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to take it in a slightly different direction. I want to focus more on Jesus as our Lord. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about the division that separates Christians and churches and why that is. But let me, let me just say this. Yes, it's a sad reality in many churches and among many Christians that there is disunity. But listen, these Christians don't really have a unity problem. They have a lordship problem. You say, well, what does that mean? As I said at the beginning of this message, unity is essential for victory. That's true. But so is obedience to all Jesus has commanded us as his followers necessary for victory. But listen to me. Obedience will only be a reality if we love Jesus more than we love ourselves and our sin. I mean, Jesus said it, right? In John 14, verse 15, if you love me, speaking to his disciples, obey my commandments. In other words, he was saying to us, if you say you love me, prove it by obeying me. Let me say it again. Your obedience to Jesus will be directly tied to how much you love him. It goes for all of us. Jesus said it. Look, victory um, in spiritual warfare, and we're talking about that. Yeah, un a, a joy in unity. But we, we, we had to talk about unity is essential for victory because there's no joy in defeat. So that's part of it, right? Victory in spiritual warfare is very simple. I'm not saying it's easy to live. It's simple to understand. If you're going to be a victorious Christian, if you're going to, be, to overcome the devil in the world, you must obey the Lord, underline that word, Jesus Christ. If you're, going to, if you're going to consistently obey Jesus, you must put him first in your life and love him supremely above everyone and everything else. He said again, you want to be victorious as a believer? Got to obey Jesus. To obey Jesus on a consistent basis, got to love him. More than you love yourself, more than you love your sin. Jesus said it when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? There were 613 commandments God gave Moses for the Jewish people. It was a running argument among the rabbis for centuries, which was the greatest. So they finally came to Jesus. Let's ask him. He said what became our mark, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. The Greek is, this is the supreme commandment above all the others. Listen to me. So much of our defeat in the Christian life is because we're trying to have victory in our own strength because it's going to benefit us in some way. So I need to have victory over my bad eating habits because I'll look better and feel better. I want to have victory over the drugs I've been taking because I'll feel, you know, more energy and so on. Uh, I need to have victory over the cigarettes because, you know, I'll live a longer life. Now, all of those are good, but Jesus is not really at the center. He's not the focus of why you want to do these things. See, we don't even realize sometimes that our focus is shifted off of Jesus Christ onto ourselves. Devil's very subtle. 
He gets us to slowly focus our attention away from Jesus onto ourselves, all the while thinking we're still focusing on Jesus. But in reality, our love for Jesus isn't the issue. It's really our love for self. Self-love has dominated our heart, not Jesus Christ anymore. And when that happens, when Jesus really isn't our first love, but self is, all kinds of problems are a result. Listen, problems that many Christians don't even realize are tied to their lack of love for and obedience to Jesus. They have problems all of a sudden. They, they can't figure out why. I'm telling you why. Whenever Jesus stops being the focus, things start to go south. Now, when Jesus is the focus and you're walking in the Spirit, I'm not saying it's going to be a rose-covered path. The devil's going to attack. But I would rather be in God's will, walking in the Spirit and being attacked by the devil, than out of God's will, focusing on self and just my life out of control because my flesh is dominating. Let me come at this from a slightly different perspective, quickly. We looked at this when we studied John's Gospel. We revisit it. I think it's that important. So many Christians have marital problems and financial problems. And they come to church wanting the pastor to basically fix their problems from the pulpit or in counseling. But listen to me. A pastor can't fix a problem that really isn't the problem. What in the world are you talking about? Look, show me a husband who doesn't cherish his wife, who doesn't sacrifice himself for her according to God's command to him in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 28, but instead is always demanding that she submit, submit, submit. You show me a husband like that, and I'll show you a husband that doesn't have a marriage problem. He's got a lordship problem. And by the same token, show me a wife who doesn't respect and submit to her husband, according to God's command to her in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, but is always challenging him and fighting with him and emasculating him and, all, and seldom, if ever, submitting to him when she disagrees with a, a decision he wants to make. You show me a woman like that, and I'll show you a gal that doesn't have a marriage problem. She's got a lordship problem. Likewise, show me a Christian couple who have spent themselves into a financial debt to the point of bankruptcy by buying everything they see and can't live without. In disobedience to Jesus' command in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. And I'll show you a couple that really doesn't have a financial problem. They've got a lordship problem. See, we tend to focus on the symptom and neglect the root cause. You can fight symptoms and pursue cures of symptoms your whole life and never make any progress. you got to get to the root. It's like a weed. You can lop off the surface ground, you know, lop off a weed at ground level. You don't get to the roots. That thing's going to keep growing. This is what we're talking about. Look, we can apply this to many of the issues and problems we face in our Christian life. Again, show me a Christian who harbors resentment and bitterness or hatred in their heart for members of different races or people of different political affiliations, harboring bitterness, anger, resentment towards co-workers or family members or a boss or towards those who have hurt them and wronged them in some way. Show me a Christian like that, and I'll show you a Christian that doesn't have relational problems. They have a lordship problem. Remember, it was the Lord, Jesus Christ, who commanded us to love our wives, guys, like Christ loved the church. And wives, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who commanded you to respect and submit to your husbands the way the church does to Christ. And Jesus told all of us as Christians that we are to love one another. This wasn't a suggestion or a uh, request. It was a command. The night before he went to the cross in the upper room, he said to his guys, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Greater love is nobody than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. We are commanded as Christians to love each other. And you're only going to love each other when you stop loving yourself. 
Will you take up your cross, die to self, follow Jesus' example, then and only then will the Spirit be energized in your life and give to you the power to fulfill the commandment God gave you because we're often thinking God's going to fulfill commandments He never gave us. Well, didn't He tell me I was going to be wealthy and successful? No, He never said that. Yeah, but so-and-so on TV, I saw that. I gave that guy my last 20 bucks. Chalk it up to learning a hard lesson. Guys, it was the Lord Jesus Christ that even commanded us to love our enemies, which is humanly impossible. I need the power of God to do that. Let me just bring this to a close. If you love, if your love for the Lord Jesus Christ is not greater than any difference you have with others, be it marital, political, racial, economic, or any other issue or conflict that you may have with another and refuse to die to self with regard to, make no mistake about it. You have a lordship problem. You are not relating to Jesus as your Lord. Hey, I fall into it too. I'm not coming up talking to you like I've mastered this. I'm talking to all of us. When we are disobedient to the word of God, we are being disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the word of God. So therefore, we can't really call him our Lord, right? Although we do. And yet, that is factually incorrect. He's not our Lord. Peter on top of that housetop, waiting to be served lunch, Acts 10. Fell into a trance, a big sheet came down from heaven pulled together at the four corners, came down to where Peter was on the housetop, opened up, all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. God spoke, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. What did Peter say? Not so. Lord, you cannot say not so to your Lord. But if Peter did it, the great apostle Peter, who we love, if he did it, it's often something we tend to do. And God corrected Peter. Peter, what I have cleansed, you don't ever say is unclean. Because he said, you know, Lord, I'm a good Jewish boy. All my life I've never eaten anything unclean. I have a strict kosher diet. Okay, well, that diet is over, Peter. And, and the bigger lesson was you don't have to stay separate from Gentiles. Because I'm going to take Jew and Gentile, save them both, and bring them together in one body in Christ. The ultimate unity. Guys, when we refuse to love and forgive people who have hurt us or wronged us, especially our spouse, at one point, if we refuse to let go and forgive them, the problem isn't with them. The problem now becomes with us. And what is the problem? Again, to be brutally honest, is just we're demonstrating self-love. We're demonstrating self-love. We are loving ourselves more than we love Jesus. Listen, self-love is at the heart of all of our problems in marriage and in the church. And what is the result of what's affecting us, this, this scourge in the church of self-love? What, what are the main problems it manifests? Disunity, division ultimately defeat. There was a secular psychologist years ago. His name was Eric Fromm. He wanted to expand his practice so that he could have Christian patients. It's a great field, untapped field for a secular psychiatrist. And so he did a little reading of the Bible and came up with something that, unfortunately, Christians adopted and still adopt to this day. Here's what he said. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, right? He took that to mean what Jesus was saying is you can't really love your neighbor until you first learn to love yourself. So instead of loving others sacrificially, now I'm loving myself first and foremost. If I have any time, maybe I'll love somebody else, but I'm really the focus. And the church embraced that idea. 
not every church, but a lot of them, still talk about that. You'll still hear Christians say, well, you know, we can't really love others until we first learn to love ourselves. Paul said in Ephesians 5, guys, we already love ourselves. That's the problem. No man ever starves himself and refuses to bathe himself and takes care of his body. We all do that by nature. Now, start loving others like you love yourself. Somebody's hungry, give them something to eat. Somebody is naked, give them something to wear. You do that for yourself, don't you? Love others as you love yourself. Not you have to learn to love yourself before you can love anybody else. That's ridiculous. Get thee behind me, Satan. All right. Our topic for this current series of messages out of the Philippians is joy and unity. But there can be no unity where we only want our way and or we refuse to forgive those who have wronged us and hurt us. Self-love rooted in pride is an evil weed that will choke out all the beautiful fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives, especially joy and unity. Because you know what? There is no joy in disunity, in division. There's only hurt and anger and sadness. Important topic. We need to close. We'll come back and revisit this next time. We have a few more things we want to say on uh, Jesus, one Lord being knitting us all together. And uh, we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love, which is awesome. The love that willingly laid down your life that we might be saved. Your final prayer to your Father the night before the cross was, Father, I pray that they would be one with each other, even as you and I are one. Lord, give us grace not to deny you your final, last request. Give us grace, Lord, that we would die to self, forgive each other, love each other, that we might be, be one with each other for your glory. We thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.